asked in his famous 1865 carol, What child is this? He asked this, What child is this who, laid to rest on Mary's lap, is sleeping? Whom angels greet with anthem sweet while shepherds watch are keeping? So where do we go for the answer to a question like that? Should we ask the theologians? I don't know that they would help us very much because they very famously disagree on their answers. Some have a divine Jesus in view. Others claim that he was merely human. Some still talk about what they call the myth of God incarnate. J.I. Packer, a very famous theologian, um, probably wouldn't want to be known in that way, but he was the regent uh, he was of Regent College in, Ma- in Vancouver, and he prayed. I can't remember if it was at a breakfast or a, a conference or something, but he famously prayed, Oh, Lord, deliver us from theological notions. And sometimes I think some of these opinions by some of these men are, are no, nothing more than really just notions. If you're old enough, you may remember the notions counter at the department store where there would be, you remember a department store maybe, like, I can't assume our church is, is very young. But the notions department or counter would have small, random collections of just whimsical type stuff, not of great value, not lasting in its value or even in its existence. They were just small knickknacks. And I think that is sometimes the way theological opinions turn out to be, if they're not based on Scripture, of course. So maybe instead of going to the theologians, we should go to the Pharisees or the scribes of Jesus' day, or maybe even see what Herod had to say, until you consider that these are just more men who may or may not have been as informed as the theologians of today. So I think we should be done with these lesser type opinions and turn to those who ought to know. In fact, turn to those who appear in the Christmas story and whose purpose in the Christmas story was to answer this very question, what child is this? So the first opinion I think we should look at is Gabriel, the angel Gabriel. Gabriel appears at least twice in the Christmas story. Once he announces the birth of John the Baptist to John's father, Zechariah. You may know those passages. And then he also appears to announce the birth of Jesus to Mary. And it is the second instance that we'll look at today to try to answer our question of who is Jesus. So we're now going to turn to Luke. Excuse me. Luke chapter 1. So he appears to Mary and refers to her as, O favored one, in verse 28, and then in verse 30, he goes, goes on to say, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be, will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Can you imagine 
if you were in Mary's place. Each of these announcements from Gabriel must have struck this young woman in a truly remarkable way. I mean, first, it was remarkable that her son would be great given her humble circumstances. It was remarkable that he would reign on the throne of David forever. Everyone, at least the Jewish people, knew about the throne of David and knew that God had promised David that he would have an heir to reign on his throne forever. But that had not yet happened. In Mary's day, the house of David had been cast down and there were foreigners ruling the land. So if Gabriel was right, this long-awaited long time of waiting, let's say that way, this long time of waiting for the Jewish people was over. Their Messiah had come, and Mary's son would be that Messiah. That had to be remarkable to her. But I don't think those announcements were the most remarkable part of Gabriel's announcement to Mary. That, I think, belongs to the statement that he would be called the Son of the Most High. Now, if it wasn't for the context here, you might think that just means that Jesus was going to be called upon for some special task. We see that phrase used that way, this sons of God. In the Old Testament, in Psalm 82, 6, we see it used that way. It was sometimes used of kings. For example, in 2 Samuel 7, 14. But in this case, in the context we're looking at here, Gabriel is explaining the conception of Mary's child without a human father. So his father would be God himself, is what the angel is saying. He would be the son of the Most High. In other words, the child was to be God's offspring in a way that no other person would ever be. So if we only had the context of Gabriel's announcement, it would still be remarkable, I guess. But that's not the only place we see it. We have the whole New Testament where this title is picked up and explained. Think of Peter in his confession of Christ. You remember in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked his disciples who they thought he was. And Peter's response was, you are the Christ the son of the living God. I mean, so we know this is not just some earthly sonship that Peter is talking about because Jesus explains that Peter couldn't possibly have known that by himself. A couple of verses later, or one verse later, Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So this idea that Peter had given to him by God the Father was that Jesus was no mere man, but was very much God. He was God incarnate. But we see this explained even more in the book of 1 John. You see, the Christians to whom John was writing were shaken by these false teachers who were claiming that Jesus had not come in the flesh. In fact, they refer to him that way in 1 John 4, 2. And these Christians were troubled by this. You would be too if your teachers suddenly stood before you and said things like that. So John is writing to encourage them and say, you are the true children of God, not those false teachers. 
You see, the false teachers are of Antichrist, is what John would say, who always deny Jesus' divinity. And John says that Christians can know they are of God by their conviction that Jesus is indeed God's Son. In 1 John 4, verse 15, it says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. So Jesus is the Son of God sort of became a confession of early Christians by which one could tell whether they truly believed in Jesus Christ. So when Gabriel told Mary that the future child would be the Son of the Most High, he was in fact saying that this child was God. So what else can we learn? Are there any further answers to the question of what child is this? Well, I think there are. Let's look at the next character in our study, and that is Joseph's angel. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, we opened with this passage. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When the mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife. So this angel might have been Gabriel. We don't know. He's not named. He is only called an angel of the Lord. And then he goes on to tell Joseph the information that is contained in the last part of that passage, starting with verse 20, going through verse 23. And this revelation is in one way very similar to Mary's in that this title, Jesus, that he says is what they should call the child, has both a human meaning and a divine application as well. Jesus means Jehovah is salvation, or it could mean Jehovah saves. It is the testimony to the truth that salvation is of the Lord. But this designation was used by many people. For example, Joshua is a variant of the same name. But that can't be the full meaning of the name here in Matthew, because the angel again is explaining the virgin conception of Jesus Christ. So that means that this name is part of the explanation of what is happening. The angel is explaining to Joseph what God is doing. It is a case of God at work. So, after giving the child the name Jesus, which means Jehovah saves, the angel goes on to say in reference to that child that he will save his people from their sins. In other words, he, this child, is the Jehovah that saves. Not only is it true that Jehovah saves, 
but this child is that Jehovah. So the revelation to Joseph is confirmed by Matthew as he continues in his narration, and he says that this is a fulfillment of what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew goes on in his quoting of this to include the little parenthetical statement telling us what Emmanuel means. It means God with us there in verse 23. So we have another piece of the answer to what child is this, but is there more we can learn? And I think there is. The next people we should listen to would be the shepherd's angel. I mean, when you think of it, if anyone should know who Mary's child is, it should certainly be God's angels. They are his messengers. That's what they did. So an angel appears to these shepherds as they're watching their sheep in the fields there surrounding Bethlehem. And this is what the angel said. Fear not. This is Luke chapter 2, verse 10. Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This is one of the most significant texts in the New Testament because through a very small grammatical detail, we see the fullest possible testimony to Jesus' divinity. Now, we need to talk a little about these words in the original Greek language, which can be confusing. It's sometimes, or most of the time, confusing to me, and I've got software to try to explain it to me. But let's give it a shot. When the angel said to the shepherds that this child born in Bethlehem was Christ the Lord, the words used there in the Greek language are Christos Kyrios. So here's the technical part. The ending of both of those words is masculine and in the nominative case, thus making the words equivalent. They are equal in their meaning. So kind of file that away for a moment. If instead the writer had used the Greek words Christos Kyrio, which was very common to use, it would have had a significantly different meaning because while the first word in that is in the nominative case, the second was in the genitive case. So the phrase would mean the Lord's Christ. The Lord's Christ. And that is an appropriate way to refer to anyone who is anointed to a special task in Israel, say a prophet or a priest or even a king. And we see David referred to this as the Lord's Christ. But that's not what the phrase says. I mean, we know that Christ could mean anointed one, so it can be used in this generic sense. But it also means Messiah. Instead of reading the Lord's Christ, we actually read Christ the Lord, which means Christ, who is the Lord. Again, the meanings are equal, Christ the Lord. The sentence means that he who, you know, by this time, by the time the angel appeared to the shepherds, he had already been born. 
was not merely the anointed one of God, although he was that. He was actually God now manifest in human form. So we look at these angels. Gabriel appeared to Mary and said to her that this child would be God's son. The angel appeared to Joseph and said that he would be Jehovah who saves. And then we have the angels who appeared to the shepherds and called him the Lord. Three angels, three testimonies. And all of these agree that Jesus is, in fact, God. But I think there's one more person we should look to whenever we talk about the identity of a child, and that is the father. You can imagine any case where the parentage of a child is disputed, and they finally go to the alleged father and say, are you the father of this child? I mean, Jesus had been declared to be the unique child of God by three appearances of angels. And we are generally, I would think, more inclined to believe angels over just mere humans. I I would be. But what about the Father? What does He say? Does He acknowledge that Jesus of Nazareth is His Son? Well, He does not in the actual Christmas story. We don't hear from Him directly in the Christmas story. We're going to have to wait 30 years to hear from Him. So after the events of these early years, which included things like the murder of the innocents by Herod, the flight to Egypt, we have Jesus returning to Nazareth, living in the home of Joseph and presumably taking up his trade. Scripture says in Luke chapter 2 that he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man as he grew. One day... He appeared at the Jordan River where his cousin John had been baptizing and preaching. And he presented himself for baptism. And if you remember the story, John was very reluctant to baptize Jesus. Matthew chapter 3, 14, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus told him that it's okay, you need to do this. It is proper that you do this. Because he had come to fulfill all righteousness. That's in the very next verse, verse 15. So John baptized Jesus. And as Jesus came up out of the water, at that moment, the Bible says that heaven was opened and the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove. And then it says that a voice from heaven was heard. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, just a couple of verses later. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So this is my beloved Son. It was the voice of God. It was His testimony. The angels had announced at His birth that Jesus was God, and now God the Father confirms it for us. So we have here the mouth of two or three witnesses, not just regular witnesses, but witnesses of the greatest trustworthiness and greatest character. And by what they tell us, Jesus' sonship was established. 
So really only one thing remains, and that is not that we seek after further witnesses, but merely that we add our confession to God's own. So we deal with our own testimony. So is the child of Christmas God's son? Is he God with us? If he is, then let us acknowledge that. Let us do so by worshiping him and by living a life of constant obedience that is indeed a declaration that he is in fact God. I mean, this is what Thomas did. You remember doubting Thomas, don't you? There was a time in Thomas's life where he really struggled with believing the confession that Jesus was the Son of God or that Jesus Christ is Lord. Early in Christ's ministry, when he had chosen his disciples and he'd set about to preach about God's kingdom, I'm sure Thomas was on board. He would have declared exactly what Peter did. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But things didn't go the way Thomas had expected. And the day came when Jesus was crucified. This was an outcome, I think, totally unexpected by Thomas. I think it really shook his world if it didn't completely shatter it. And so a few days later, when someone said to him that Jesus has been raised from the dead, he wouldn't believe it. One writer put it this way, if we're talking about creeds and confessions, Thomas's might have been something like, dead men don't rise. And I think I probably would have been in that same camp. When your personality is very logical, pretty hard to believe someone that just comes and tells you that a dead person has come back from the dead and is now alive. I would probably be in the same camp. Thomas was in. But the truth is, Jesus had risen whether Thomas believed it or not, and whether you believe it or not. And so Jesus, a few days after that, presented himself to Thomas for examination. And so this Thomas, who just a few minutes before had been a skeptic, fell down before him, confessing in John chapter 20, verse 28, that you are my Lord and my God. Josh, I'm going to ask you to return to the stage and we'll prepare to close. This is exactly what you and I must do. Is we need a confession like that. We must confess Jesus to be God and more than that, to be our God. And even more than that, not just to be our God, but to be our Lord. We must say with the centurion who is present at the crucifixion, surely this is the Son of God. Like Paul in Acts chapter 9, verse 5, who acknowledged Jesus Christ as Lord. So we must confess as Thomas did when he said, my Lord and my God. So what child is this? who laid to rest on Mary's lap as sleeping, whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping. Well, William Chatterton Dix knew the answer to this when he wrote it because he goes on to write this. This, this is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him laud, the babe 
the son of Mary. So bring him incense, gold and myrrh, come peasant, king, to own him. The king of kings salvation brings, let loving hearts enthrone him. This, this is Christ the king, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him laud, the babe, the son of Mary. Would y'all please stand and Josh is going to lead us in this hymn this morning. <laughs> 